You'll find Isaiah 65, where we are this morning, finishing this chapter, leaving us only one chapter to finish next week, Lord willing. You'll find that on page 742 in your pew Bibles. Do you this morning need your faith renewed, your hope renewed, your faith strengthened? If that describes you this morning, then you've come to the right place and you've come to the right passage. And I hope as we read this passage together, both your faith would indeed be strengthened and your hope renewed in what God has set before us and the promises that he has given. Last week, we looked at the first part of chapter 65, and we were reminded that these Two final chapters of the book of Isaiah, 65 and 66, are really the answer to the prayer of the prophet who acts faithfully as a watchman, according to chapter 62, a prayer he prays on behalf of the remnant, the elect of God, God's people, his servants. He begins in 63.7 and continues to the end of chapter 64. Last week, as we looked at the first part of chapter 65, part of that answer to the prayer of Isaiah, we saw that our God is a God who makes distinctions. The distinction here, of course, as we noted, is before us uh, or between the unfaithful of Israel and the remnant that he has chosen. That's what he distinguishes between the unfaithful of Israel and the remnant that he has chosen which will be from among his people, Israel, as well as including all of those whom he will call from among the Gentiles. This theme of the distinction that God makes is really prominent in both chapters 65 and 66. Lord willing, again next week, we'll see how that distinction plays out there in that final chapter. Now another way, and this is a reminder, and Hopefully you remember that another distinction that Isaiah speaks of in his prophecy is the one that exists between Babylon and Jerusalem. Remember, as we studied those passages that speak of Babylon and represent the enemies of God in the book of Isaiah. And that theme continues all the way through the Bible until the very last book in Revelation where Babylon rises again as a picture of those who rebel against God and who are his enemies. That's true in Isaiah as well. Isaiah uh, prominently speaks of Babylon in that way. Not only the earthly enemy of God's people who had taken his people into captivity in fulfillment of God's promise of what he would do for their rebellion, but also as a larger picture of all the enemies of God who exist upon the face of the earth, who rebel against his word. And then Jerusalem is not only the city, literal city in Israel, that was so important to God's people that was destroyed by the Babylonian invasion and later rebuilt under Nehemiah and Ezra, and then later again destroyed in 70 AD. There is a a physical city, Jerusalem, But in Isaiah, and especially in the book of Revelation, Jerusalem, or Zion, as Isaiah likes to refer to her as, represents his people, his servants, his elect, called by grace and united to Jesus Christ 
through faith and made up, as we've noted all along in our study, of both Jew and Gentile alike, that finds its ultimate fulfillment in the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, this distinction by a God who makes distinctions is found all through the Bible, including again, as we noted, the book of Revelation, where both of these cities, as pictures of these two contrary things, are seen very, very clearly. In fact, that very truth in Revelation and other places will help us this morning to understand what it is that the prophet is seeing in these verses. That is verses 17 through 25. So with that as an introduction, a reminder, I would ask that you would stand as we read just briefly these verses. This is a picture of the new heaven and the new earth as seen by Isaiah, spoken by the Lord through him for the encouragement of his people, for the building of their faith and the renewal of their hope. Beginning in verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in, this, in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die at a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my, shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. All flesh is as the grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word, which indeed renews our hope, strengthens our faith as you bless it. And so we ask that this morning you would bless your word, having read it, now the preaching of it and the conscionable hearing of it, that all of this you would bless to our growth and to our encouragement in this life even as we look to the life to come, secured for us in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I trust you remember the two great divisions of the book of Isaiah, chapters 1 through 39. 
mainly speaking, primarily, I should say, speaking to the people in Isaiah's own day, reminding them of God's justice and righteousness in his punishment of his own people for their rebellion, as well as his punishment uh, of the nations around them who have constantly attacked and abused his people. It's primarily, uh, again, in the context of Isaiah's own day. Beginning in chapter 40, there's a clear shift, a change. The audience now becomes the people in captivity, generations down the road, to whom Isaiah is writing, giving them a hope and a a great uh, encouragement in the times of their suffering, that God will bring an end to their suffering and captivity, and that he will do so ultimately through the person of his son, his strong arm, his servant whom he will send, who will deliver them, not merely from the captivity of Babylon, which that prefigures and points to the ultimate captivity from sin and from punishment and wrath that we deserve because of our sins through Jesus Christ. And so as he writes to that generation beginning in chapter 40, You'll remember the great words of encouragement spoken to them to remind them of his faithfulness, not only to them, but his faithfulness to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It begins famously and wonderfully with these words, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received From the Lord's hand, double for all of her sins, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Those verses set the stage for everything we've studied in chapters 40 through 66, and they find their ultimate fulfillment, their ultimate fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ as he comes from the Father, as he lays aside his glory and comes as one filled with grace and glory, as he comes in his person, in the person of Jesus as he takes on our humanity and lives among us. All of that is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what Isaiah has been referring to all of this time, to the coming of Jesus in the fullness of time, a coming that would mark the beginning of a new age and the dawning of a new day. The beginning of something new means that it must be brought to its full completion. The beginning is just that. It's a beginning. And anything that begins must be brought to its end, and that is true of Jesus. The beginning work of God in the prophecy of Isaiah, beginning in chapter 40 all the way through, it begins in the first coming of Jesus Christ. But it will be fully realized and fully consummated at his second coming, the place where he will uh, fully or we will fully realize the blessings of God in Christ. And so until then, we wait patiently, Isaiah tells us, patiently for the coming again of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we wait with hope. We wait with hope. 
Now again, remembering the original audience, just imagine for a moment, perhaps in captivity already some 50, 60, 70 years as the Lord had promised. They hear the words of Isaiah. It would have been received as a great encouragement to a people languishing in captivity, living their lives away from Jerusalem in Babylon. Not unlike us today, languishing here, if you will, on the earth, this uh, sojourning that we do as pilgrims and strangers in a foreign land, knowing that our heavenly home is what God has prepared for us. The words he spoke to that people long ago, he speaks this morning to us for our encouragement, for the renewal of our hope. I will say that this is the great focus of the prophet in this chapter as well as the next chapter. It is about this new creation that God has begun in Christ and that he will bring to completion at the coming of Christ again. If you look at the very end of the book, if you'll just turn over two pages perhaps in your Bible, you'll see that this theme of verses 17 and following in chapter 65 come to the forefront again at the very end of the book. Verse 22, for as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. It's the primary theme of these last two chapters. And again, its intent is to strengthen our faith and to renew our hope. These verses, chapter 65, 17 through 25, we can divide really into three sections before making application. The first is this, verse 17, a new creation. And then verses 18 and 19, a new response, not really new in Isaiah, but a new response as to what God intends and plans. And then thirdly, in verses 19 through 25, a new reality, a new experience, if you will. Look with me then at verse 17, a new creation. For behold, Isaiah writes, the Lord speaks, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. One might ask, as you look at this verse, why it is that God needs to create a new heavens and a new earth. Well, the answer, according to the Bible, in so many places is simply this. The effects of man's fall, man's rebellion against God, has not only separated man from God by nature, so that God is by nature our enemy and we his, but it has had its impact upon all of creation. As we look at the creation God has made, many of us have traveled and looked up and down the roads of New Jersey. Some have gone further north to see the beauty of the leaves changing this time of year. We marvel as we visit some of the great landmarks of our nation and around the world. And we truly and rightly marvel at what God has made. And yet we acknowledge that even the beauty that we see has been marred by man's sin. Creation bears within itself the marks of man's rebellion. And so there is a great need for a new creation. 
Consider the words of the Apostle Paul as he writes in Romans 8 about our great confidence. He writes these verses, beginning in verse 19, for the creation waits, the creation, all of creation, animals and inanimate objects, the scenery that we see, the heavenly bodies, everything waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, a mark of man's rebellion and sin, not willingly, not that the creation itself rebelled against God, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. What Isaiah sees in this verse, verse 17, is a new creation that will transform everything that God has made, that will renew everything. What Isaiah sees is that the old will be changed. And as he says, the former things shall no longer be remembered or even come into our minds. That's an expression of the reality of that new creation, swallowing up everything so that nothing of the old, broken, and fallen world will ever even be remembered. Some people have said, Pastor, what is it that we'll remember and know in heaven? I think this verse speaks very clearly, as well as others, is that everything, everything of the former things... And in a moment, we'll see part of what that means as far as the sadness and the loss and the sufferings of this former creation will be swallowed up with what is new and perfect and glorious in what God has made. How is it that we can actually even fathom that idea that we'll no longer even remember and it won't come to our minds the things that we have suffered and endured in this life. As one author recently quoted John Calvin, he said this, and I think the principle is true. Calvin writes, the sun when it rises and is risen deprives even the stars of their brightness. If you think about what he's saying there, that, that the brightness of the stars which we look and observe in heaven and in the heavens when the sun rises, the brightness of those stars is just gone. How much more will the sufferings and the sadness of this life be put away forever because of the rising sun of Christ over all creation? That, that's what this means. And that's what Isaiah says. There is a new creation coming Peter, in his letter read earlier as part of our response, echoes this very truth. And Peter writes this, and it's really an application of this truth. Since all of these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort, what kind of people ought we to be in living lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, 
be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. You see, that speaks to the lives we're to live because of the promise of a new heavens and a new earth. Brothers and sisters, there is a new creation coming. It is not the destruction of the old, but the renewal of the old. That it will be made new in righteousness, and that to display more clearly than ever the glory of God, untouched by sin and rebellion, creation itself rejoicing in the renewal that God brings at the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The people in captivity, the sojourners and strangers walking in this earth, strengthen their faith as these things are heard, and their hope is renewed in what God is doing and will do on that great day. So we see, first of all, a new creation Secondly, in verses 18 and 19, we see what I'm referring to here as a new response. There is, of course, so much lacking in our response to the Lord. We, we don't live the lives that Peter calls us to live. We often struggle with sin and the rebellion of our own hearts that remains within us. We don't often have the joy of the Lord, which is our strength as we live from day to day. We're overcome and overwhelmed by the realities of this life in a fallen world with remaining sin within us. And so this new response is consistent with a new creation. It is the fullness of a response that here Isaiah speaks to. But be glad, he says, and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. Notice there are two things going on here. A mutual reciprocal response. It is, first of all, the people taking delight, pure delight in the Lord and in what he has done. Now that we've already seen many times in the book of Isaiah in our studies of some of the songs of Isaiah and even some of the prayers we have seen how the Lord calls his people to delight in him. Isaiah 60, for instance, lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. That is the Gentiles are coming into Jerusalem. Your son shall come from afar and your daughter, daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and you shall be radiant and your heart shall thrill and exult. That is a picture, I think, ultimately of the fullness of what Isaiah is speaking of here in these verses, that the new heavens and the new earth will be filled with a, an undivided response on the part of God's people who delight in the Lord and who delight in all that he has done. As we see the elect gathered from all the nations of the earth, every tribe and tongue and nation, you see that joy and that exaltation in the book of Revelation chapters 4 and 5. As the saints from all the ages are gathered, John sees in the vision, before the throne of God, they're rejoicing and giving praise to God. This is the people's delight, the servants, the elect of God, their delight in the Lord for all that he has done, focused primarily in Revelation 
upon the work of God in Jesus Christ, that he has redeemed a people for himself. And so for us who struggle at times to to give God the glory and praise, to remember that he is our God in whom we are to delight, our strong tower, our stronghold in defense. Here is the great encouragement and promise. There will come a day where we will purely and with immeasurable joy, joy unspeakable, Peter says elsewhere, will rejoice in the Lord for all that he has done. It will be part of the natural order of things in the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. But don't miss this because I think it's so important in Isaiah, in his prophecy, there is a mutual delighting that the Lord takes in his people. Often as I speak to people, as we as pastors speak to people, this is one of the more difficult things that people struggle with as they seek to put their minds around the truth that God delights in us who are his people. We're, We're mired with sin and rebellion. We see our own hearts and we wonder how it is that God can delight in us. What we often remind people is simply this, that he delights in us not merely for our sake, meaning because of what he sees in us, but because of who he sees in us. And because of our union with Jesus Christ, his delight in us is inseparably tied to the person and work of his son. His delight in us as his elect for whom Christ died is tied to the person of his son in whom he forever delights. And so this idea that that he has created Jerusalem, this is really the first part, to be a joy, her people to be a gladness, that is to be filled with joy and gladness, that he, verse 19, will also rejoice in Jerusalem, that is Jerusalem representing his people, and be glad in my people. God delights in us because we are united to Jesus Christ. We saw this in Isaiah 62, the Lord's delight in his people. You shall, he speaks of Zion, the people of God. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. That's a wonderful promise that certainly strengthens our faith and encourages our hope and reminds us of all that God even now does because of Jesus Christ. So you have a new creation promised by God. You have a new response that is inseparably a part of that new creation, that mutual delighting one in the other as a married couple delights in one another on their marriage day. So it is with the Lord and his people to whom he is united through Christ. He delights in her and she delights in him. Well, thirdly, and it's the bulk of the passage very quickly, is a new reality, a new experience. This new creation that has 
this new response will also exhibit a new reality. Now, this section is important for us to note. There are things here that no doubt as you read them and I read them, we might tend to get a little bit confused as to what Isaiah is looking at, what he is seeing. We've already set the context. It is the new creation that he is speaking of. It is the new creation that will lead to a reversal of everything that was a part of this fallen world. It is really the reversal of the curse that is in view here. This is prophetic uh, language, a prophetic passage, and consistent with prophetic passages, whether Old or New Testament, like the book of Revelation, for instance. We are not called to interpret it literally, word for word, and to try to describe and have our curiosity uh, sort of answered as we think, what, what, what's heaven really going to be like? That is not what this passage is about. But it does use the language of the covenant that God made with his people. It uses the language of their experience as members of this nation whom God has called and set apart. It uses the language of this earth to describe in ways that are beyond our ability to describe the truth and reality of heaven itself and of the new creation. Now, to be fair, there are some commentators that take these verses to speak of a literal millennial reign of Christ on the earth prior to his second coming. That interpretation belongs to a larger body of interpretation that sees the literal earthly city of Jerusalem as being restored during that period of time and that will exhibit these kinds of realities. Now, we have rejected that. I have in my preaching and teaching. We have as a church uh, not followed in that uh, either dispensational or uh, even the um, historical view of the dispensations. We have rejected that in our study of Isaiah and our study of the book of Revelation. And what I'm saying this morning is that these verses are a picture, an image that Isaiah sees about the perfections of the new Jerusalem, of heaven itself. So how are then are we to understand these? I'm going to give you, I think, six things that we see very clearly, and we'll move through them fairly quickly. It's a picture Isaiah is given to show that the new creation will result in a reversal of the curse. The first thing we see is the end of verse 19 into verse 20, and that is the reversal of the ravages of death. The ravages of death, which are part of this life and this world, no more shall be heard in it. That is in the new creation, the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner, a hundred years old, shall be accursed. Now, this is not describing a literal reality. I believe it is a picture of the reversal of the ravages of death in favor of a picture of longevity or really eternal life. The imagery here of both the one who is a child who dies at a few days is part of the great heartache of this world and this life. 
There are many within our congregation who have lost babies uh, during pregnancy, early in the pregnancy, some further along. And there is nothing we know and understand in this life that that tears at the heart regarding the reality of the consequence of man's fall and sin than that reality of the loss of an infant in the womb. Nor is it true that death itself does not leave its heartache in this world. All of us will face death. All of us know loved ones who have gone on from this life. The reversal of those things and the promise of longevity of life is what is promised here of the everlasting life in and of itself. The mention of a sinner here is simply mentioned in contrast to the young man who dies 100 years old. That shall no longer happen. And the sinner 100 years old shall be accursed. Everlasting torment, no matter how old the person remains. That's the picture here. A picture of the reversal of the ravages of death itself. That's part of the new creation, Isaiah says. Then in verse 21, we have a second picture here in following, and that is the enjoyment that we will have of all that we possess. Now, it's important here to see the promises of God in the old covenant. We won't turn to it, but Deuteronomy 28 uses this very language with respect to the curses of God against his people for their disobedience. And part of the curse includes that they will labor, they will work with their hands, but they will not enjoy the harvest. That language is right out of Deuteronomy 28. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit instead of building and another inhabiting, planting and another eating. This is a picture of God reversing the curse of Deuteronomy, the curse of the old covenant that in the new heavens and the new earth, all that we put our hands to will be productive and will be for our good and for our enjoyment. There won't be the curse anymore of others coming in and taking what we have done. And so it's a removal here of the curse as we enjoy the possessions that God has given to us, the full reality of the blessings that are ours in Christ. For like, uh, they shall, for like in the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of our, their hands. This is really a third and separate picture. It's the satisfaction and joy that we will find in labor. While this is not a literal picture of heaven in the sense that we can look through this and see exactly what heaven's going to be like, there is a teaching here that says part of our experience in heaven will be labor and work. The working that God gave to Adam and Eve before the fall will be restored and people will be working and laboring with joy in the Lord and we will enjoy the work of our hands. The language of being like a tree planted by the waters uh, is the language and echo of Psalm 1 that we will be like a tree by the waters receiving all that we have need of and flourishing. Again, longevity is in view and permanence. That tree planted will be permanent. And that's a picture of the new heavens and the new earth as well. A satisfaction and joy in labor and a permanence in the presence of God. 
And then you have the blessings of covenant life that is referenced here in verse 23. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. I see here a reference to the blessings of covenant life, the promise being to us and to our children. The Lord will gather together all of his elect and they together will enjoy the presence of the Lord together. Then finally, known by God, verse 24, but they call and I will, before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear that we will be known by God as we know God, that God will dwell with us. There won't be any longer a need for prayer, as it were. Uh, this is a reference to our communion and fellowship with God that will be perfected in the new heavens and the new earth. And so we will call, God will answer. And even before we speak, he will hear us because we are known by him. God is with us and we are with him. Then finally, I should say, there's the last one in verse 25. The natural order will be restored. When God created man in the garden, he gave him authority over all the beasts. It was a very different world then, as we know, a world in which all that God had made dwell together in peace. Because of sin, all of that has changed, and now animals and people are opposed to one another. But now, and they're opposed to each other within their own realm as animals. But now the wolf and the lamb shall graze together the lion shall eat straw like an ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food, and no one shall hurt or destroy any longer. I don't know what the Lord has prepared for heaven with regard to animals. People ask all the time, will my dog be in heaven? I don't know. Will there be animals in heaven? It seems that there will be, but whatever the existence is in that new heavens and new earth the restoration of the order of Eden will be established or restored. And no longer will we be enemies, as it were. No longer will animals, creatures that God has made, work against mankind. And no longer will there be fear on either side. But rather there will be true peace, true shalom. That's the picture I think we have here. Satan himself is referenced, I think, in this verse when it speaks about the serpent's food being dust, that God's curse upon, upon Satan will come to its completion. And this is a picture, I think, of his ultimate being cast out of this creation of the new heavens, new earth into the lake of fire, where he will be punished forever, cursed by God. No longer shall what exists today be true in that day. The natural order will be restored. Well, this is a picture, again, of the new heavens and the new earth. It's a picture of what God has prepared for each one of us who love him. Two things to say, then, as we close out this study, and we're going to continue in this theme in chapter 66. Number one, all of this, all that I have already said this morning, has begun already in Jesus Christ. It's already begun. The new has broken into the present in the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
These things are already true. Already true of each one of us. Not in their fullness by any stretch, but already known and experienced by true believers. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul makes a very careful and important argument as he considers the great privilege that he has received to be a minister of the new covenant. He speaks of the glory of the old covenant, the giving of the law. He relates how the face of Moses shone with the glory that is from God. And then he makes this comparison. For if there was a glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. He's comparing the giving of the law to the preaching of the gospel. Indeed, he says in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with a glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. What's Paul saying? That when Christ came and preached the gospel as he first did as he walked on this earth, and was Paul and Paul when he was set apart to proclaim the gospel, he was preaching a gospel of glory far greater than what Moses ever proclaimed. When a person believes this gospel by the grace of God, there is a glory that far outweighs the glory of the old covenant that takes up residence, if you will, in the person redeemed by God. So Paul says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. The image is the image of Christ, the person of Jesus. And as the gospel is preached and heard and we receive it with joy, we are being transformed. It is the new creation at work, already beginning to take its root in our lives, which is why Paul says two chapters later, from now on, he says, we regard no one according to the flesh any longer even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Brothers and sisters, the work of God in Christ marks the beginning of this work that Isaiah sees in its fullness and consummation at the end of the age, a picture beyond our ability to comprehend, but a reality that has begun now in Jesus Christ. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, the new creation has already come. That's why we can say we are called to rejoice and to be glad in the Lord, and that we can say the Lord, for Christ's sake, rejoices and is glad in us. That's why we can say there's already a reversal of the things that God has uh, and will bring about in the new creation. It's already begun in our lives because of the work of Jesus Christ. A greater glory has come, and it is the glory of the new creation. Which leads me to say this. This then is our great hope and our assurance. This is where our hope and assurance comes from. 
It's why I've said all along, if you want your strength, your faith to be strengthened and your hope to be encouraged, this passage speaks to that directly. It was Isaiah's purpose in writing to the people in captivity and bondage to remind them of a hope that was beyond what they expected. They expected simply to go back to Jerusalem, to rebuild the city, to reinstitute the sacrificial system. But Isaiah, the Lord through Isaiah, gave them something that was of greater significance, of greater importance in their lives. Paul notes with regard to that creation that groans, he says, not only the creation is groaning, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We are, as one writer said, saved by grace through faith and hope. We are assured of the grace of God, which is the ground of our salvation. We are assured of the faith that God gives to us as the means of our salvation. And we are also assured of the hope of glory, which is the end of our salvation. How do we know more of this in this life? It's already begun, but admittedly, this life is hard. It is difficult. It is discouraging. And we often lose our focus. We often do not see these things clearly. Isaiah wants us to see them this morning clearly. When I was newly converted at the age of 19 to faith in Christ, I remember at some point not long after that hearing a hymn and immediately loving it. It's always been a favorite of mine, and it's always been a reminder of the life that we are called to live as followers of Jesus. It is simple, but is powerful at the same time. To my shame, I've often forgotten the simple lesson of this hymn. It was written by a woman by the name of Helen Lemmel, and it was written as she herself was moved by the writings of a missionary to Algeria named Lilius Trotter. Lilius Trotter was a very gifted artist who sought to capture the world that God had made in beautiful paintings. In fact, in her day, late 19th, early 20th century, she was destined to be one of the most famous artists who had ever lived. So said one who had an interest in her both romantically and because of her artwork. Lilius Trotter ended up laying all of that aside to go as a missionary to Algeria, simply to follow Jesus. And while she was there, she wrote a wonderful poem that became the source for Helen Lemmel as she wrote this wonderful hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. The poem that Lilius Trotter wrote was called Focused, a Story and a Song. And in that story and song, I won't read it all, it's a rather lengthy poem, but it ends with these words, which I think capture the heart of what Lemel tried to capture in her writing of this hymn. Turn, Lilius Trotter said, turn full your soul's vision to Jesus and look and look at him. 
and a strange dimness will come over all that is apart from him, and the divine attraction for which God's saints are made, even in this 20th century, will lay hold of you, for he is worthy to have all there is to be had in the heart that he has died to win. Helen Lemo, late in her life, became blind, and she was already, if not already blind, going blind when she wrote this wonderful hymn, which is ironic, isn't it? Turn your eyes, she said, upon Jesus. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior, a life more abundant and free. Through death into life everlasting, he passed and we follow him there. O'er us sin no more hath dominion, for more than conquerors we are. His word shall not fail you, he promised. Believe him and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying, his perfect salvation to tell. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. It's simply living by faith and not by sight. Everything is not as it appears in this fallen world. Let us be careful as we live before him. Hebrews says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. One of those people of old was Abraham. And the Bible says that he looked for a city not made with hands, but one whose builder and architect is God. He looked for a better country, a heavenly city, the same city that Isaiah is speaking of here in chapter 65, the same city that Isaiah or John saw in Revelation 21, as he saw the new heavens and the new earth and a city coming down from heaven, a bride adorned for her husband. It is what Isaiah pictured for the people of old. It is what he sets before us this morning, which is why I wanted to sing the hymn we sang before the sermon. Speak, O Lord, renew our minds. Help us to grasp the heights of your plans for us. Truths unchanged before the dawn of time that will echo down through eternity. And by grace, we will stand on your promises. And by faith, we will walk as you walk with us. Speak, O Lord, till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. We do not yet see these things. We do not yet see, as Hebrews says, everything in subjection to him, but we see him. Let us pray. Father, you have set before us this morning a vision of something that our minds are unable to fully comprehend, a picture of heaven itself, of the perfections of a life we have never known in this world. We rejoice that you have given us such a hope, and we look for it with eagerness and anticipation. We long for his appearing and for the full manifestation of the glory yet to be revealed. Father, until that day, until he comes, would you allow us now and always to fix our eyes on Jesus, to turn to him with eyes of faith, to see his face, to be satisfied with his likeness in us, being formed more and more with each passing day. 
Bring it to completion, O Lord, we pray. And we would pray it all for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.